welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I am once again your host, Monica Hadley, and I do not have my mother, Caroline, with me today, but she'll be back in a future episode. But what I do have today is an interesting look at military history. So I know some people love to read about military history. My grandfather was was one of them. Um, our, our guest today is Tom Clavin, and he, along with Phil Keith, was the author, is the author of the To the Uttermost Ends of the Earth, the Epic Hunt for the South's Most Feared Ship and the Greatest Sea Battle of the Civil War. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Tom. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Now, you have written quite a few books but um, about military history. Let me just give a little bit of your background. Tom Clavin is the author of 18 nonfiction books and has worked as a newspaper editor, magazine writer, TV and radio commentator, and reporter for the New York Times covering a variety of topics. His two most recent books, Blood and Treasure, Daniel Boone and the Fight for America's First Frontier with Bob Drury, and Lightning Down, a World War II story of survival, were national bestsellers. Other best-selling titles include Dodge City, The Heart of Everything That Is, Tombstone, and The Last Stand of Fox Company. Wow. So you cover a lot of American history. Yeah, I'm pretty fortunate in that case uh, that I get to not only write about American history in general, but, you know, such interesting events or periods in American history. Uh, you know, some of it's, uh, you know, wartime, but it's not just, you know, I know there are some very, very good writers out there who have made entire careers writing about a particular period in history or a particular war, Civil War, for example, or World War II. But I get to... Uh, play the field, I guess, is a way to play it, and, and write, about, you know, write about different aspects of either a particular war or, or different different wars, different eras. How do you decide what you're going to write about? Well, I have to say that oftentimes it's, it, it, it's, it's sort of like it decides itself. Uh, I could be I, – I, I, it's almost embarrassing to say how many times I've ended up writing a book because I stumbled upon something. I think Lightning Down is a good example of that. It's it's uh, I had been researching, doing research for a different book, and I happened to find an obituary in a weekly newspaper in the state of Washington about a fella who uh, it, he had just died, and it mentioned that he had been a prisoner at the Buchenwald. He was a fighter pilot, fighter pilot, American fighter pilot, had been a prisoner at the Buchenwald concentration camp. And I think I had a typical reaction many other people would have said, wait a minute, there were no Americans in the yeah. Nazi concentration camps. You know, where'd that come from? And I ended up doing some more research into it and found out that he was one of 170 uh, such pilots who were sent and incarcerated at Buchenwald. And, and the, the game plan was they were supposed to die there. And and that that many of them did not was, was basically the story of lightning down. So that, I think that's a good example of having to – having been looking in one area and then you know tripping over something and instead of just walking away from it I, I look back and say what did I just trip over right because that's not sort of an obvious thing to write about um, Daniel Boone maybe is a little more obvious yeah Boone was something where when Bob Drury and I uh, we had done a book that came out in 2013 called the heart of everything that is and 
it's mostly set uh, among the Plains Indians in the 1850s and 1860s and sort of like the 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 last gasp of some of those tribes to be uh, free hunting grounds before eventually by by 1870 they were pretty much all confined to reservations and and I especially wanted to at some point when we had a chance write about going back in time to where this where did this all begin what was the, what was the very first frontier and the first Indian tribes that were encountered that first frontier and that's so we were looking at the period in the in the mid to the late 1700s of the United States when the settlers were first cutting across the Adirondacks and the Alleghenies and starting to explore and settle in the Ohio Valley and Kentucky and places like that. And Daniel Boone uh, became our guide to all of that because as we did a little more research into it, we found, A, a lot of what has been written about him or our view of Daniel Boone is just not true. And B, he seemed to be everywhere. He was he was you know leading parties of explorers across the mountains. He was played a pivotal role in the American Revolution. He did this, he did that. So uh, again, we didn't start out doing Blood and Treasure with the idea that we were going to write a book about Daniel Boone. It was, it was sort of like he came in after we had the general <laughs> idea of the book we were going to do, and here's, here's good old Daniel who's going to help us guide us through it. So what are some of the things that we think we know about Daniel Boone that are not true? Well, he did not die at the Alamo. Uh, oh you know, wow! Many people get, get him confused with Davy Crockett <laughs> right, that they're right. intertwined. Yeah, and and part of that is because the same actor, Fess Parker, played Daniel <laughs> Boone and Davy Crockett in, in Disney projects back in the day. Yeah, and I watched them uh, he, all. <laughs> yeah, he never wore a coonskin cap. Uh, he uh, he was he was somebody who was an extraordinarily long life and adventurous life. I mean, Daniel Boone was born in 1734 and died in 1820. So you're talking about a large swath of American history and early exploration and and the early frontier that Daniel Boone was present for. So uh, I think that we, uh, you know, we have this view of him as, as this benign uh, character that uh, had, you know, surrounded by Indian pals and, and, and never got into any tough scrapes because he was such a proficient hunter and such a brave and valiant guy. There's many times that Daniel Boone came within a whisker of being killed. He had a lot of interesting adventures. And so we found as we got more into the real Daniel Boone, we said, gosh, what a story this is. This this is much more than we bargained for. <laughs> wow. So what drew you to the subject matter of the book we're talking about today, To the Uttermost Ends of the Earth, which is really about the Confederate Navy? Yeah, such as it was. Uh, such as it was. <laughs> you, know, you know, most people think about the Civil War, they think about and battles of the Civil War, you know, correctly, they think about Antietam and Gettysburg and Vicksburg and Appomattox and some of the other places like that. And if they think at all that there was any kind of naval component to the Civil War, they say, you know, they hearken back to, you know, fourth or fifth grade social studies. Oh, the Monitor and the Merrimack. Which was, you know, wasn't that much of a battle to begin with, and it also took place inshore. It was on a river. And what most people don't know is that there was this major sea battle off the coast of France, in the Atlantic, off the coast of France, between the Confederacy and the Union. And it was in the form of these two ships, the USS Kearsarge and the CSS Alabama. And so it's mostly an untold story. And, and, uh, you know, when Phil and I had done a book previously called All Blood Runs Red, and it had 
about the first African American fighter pilot. This was generation before the Tuskegee Airmen, and uh, the book came out. It was very well received. Uh, it was really supposed to be just a one-off for, for Phil and I, and because we each had other projects we were working on, but. It was so well received that the publisher came to us and said, you know, is there something else that you've got an eye on? And uh, I had had this idea of the of, of what became the uttermost ends of the earth, sort of a tucked at the bottom of a pile for years and thinking I'll never get around to it. And But then I sort of dug it out because my co-author, Phil, uh, in addition to himself being, you know, fascinated with American history and having done several books on it, was a retired captain who spent 25 years in the U.S. Navy. So an idea that, that he wanted to do a story about the, the, the Navy and do one that also was part of American history uh, was very enticing. And thankfully, our publishers said, that sounds like a, like a good idea. Go for it. And I'm sure that for you, having somebody with the naval experience made cut down on the amount of research you were going to have to do to make this book work. Yeah, it did help. I mean, a lot of the nomenclature in the book, uh, it's, it's there. There are quite a few details in it that that I think really help the reading experience because you know you're the reader's supposed to feel like you're really on the U.S. CSS Alabama and you're on the USS Kearsarge as they're sailing around the world, you know, chasing each other. And uh, there's a lot of nomenclature about, about the uh, you know the terms that are used, especially the authentic ones from the 1860s uh, ships that were by this point, part sailing ships and part steamships. And uh, so to, to have Phil with his experience, uh, yes, when he served in the Navy, it was in the it was in the 1970s and 80s, not in the 1860s, but still, there's a lot of things that, about naval terminology and naval practices even that have not changed significantly from those days. Oh, I bet. I bet. That's one of the things I found interesting about this book. It isn't just about this battle, but really about the history and development of um, naval ships during this period of time. Because not only were they converting from sail to steam, they were, there was wood versus iron. And, yeah. and you go into a lot of detail about these ships being built. Yeah, especially because of the CSS Alabama. Uh, you know, one of the things we point out, which we have to point out earlier on in the book, is that when the Civil War began, the not only did the Union have more ships available to it, but it had the manufacturing capability to really ramp things up and start to almost mass produce uh, ships that they could put into the water. The Confederacy had, you know, a handful of, of rickety ships. And also did not have the ability, the manufacturing capability, to produce warships. Now, in the case of the Alabama, it was, it was done on the sly. It was basically, you know, a, a man named Thomas Mallory sent over uh, a sack full of money to to England, <laughs> and went to the Laird Shipbuilding Company, which was like a very prestigious shipbuilding company in Liverpool, and said, "Here's, here's as much money as we have. Build us a ship, but you have to do it quietly." And pretend you're building a yacht for a wealthy Englishman, <laughs> uh, Lord Lord Fauntleroy or whatever, because you know officially England can't be seen helping one side or the other, so you can't be building a Confederate warship. Mm. So that's basically what was done. That very secretly, what became the Alabama was built as almost uh, something like a, a very unusual kind of big yacht for a secretive English nobleman, and only when uh, the 
English government prodded by by union representatives started to get curious like well what are you, what are you really building over there the, uh, the 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 small crew took out what they said was going to be like a training mission so they took off and just never came back <laughs> and they rendezvoused out in the ocean with a ship that was carrying cannon and ammunition and gun you know gunpowder things like that and they put them installed that all into the ship that became the CSS Alabama so it's kind of a an advent before the Alabama even launches it's kind of an adventure story of how this was this was uh the ship was built a warship was built under the noses of the British government and in secret from the American government. I was actually kind of surprised that the European nations were would even let the the Confederate ships come to port and so forth because most of them had outlawed slavery long before. Yeah, England certainly had most of the other countries had by that point and there was there seemed to be a a a, a Fascination with the Confederacy on the part of, of Europe and England and uh, you know England and Spain and and France. Uh, you know, they, England especially had not forgotten how the had been all that long ago that the American had had the colonies had, had separated through the Revolutionary War from England. And here you have a bunch of states that were trying to separate itself from the larger United States. So that, so England had a it was almost like a bit of revenge in a little ways if, if, they, if the Confederate states had been successful. And there was also the economic aspect. Uh, the South did not have much manufacturing capability, which England did have. What the South had was tons of raw materials. You know, it had, had cotton, it had, uh, had minerals, it had all kinds of things that could be shipped to England for manufacturing. So the the Yes, you know, as you point out, there was the issue of slavery, which is not appealing to the to the England at all. But what was appealing was the idea that if the South wins, or at least if some kind of truce is, is is arranged, in which there's some recognition of the Confederate States of America, uh, if England had kept its doors open and even in a subtle way given some support to the Confederates, that the Confederates the Confederacy would be able to start uh, working out some trade deals, and and England would have been very happy with that. It's really always comes down to the money, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. I mean, and that, uh, how, how many times a war is fought, basically, they might seem like they're altruistic reasons. We're doing this to help somebody else, or we have very important uh, you know, uh, principles to stand up for. But most times it's about money. And for, the, for, for deep, deep into the Civil War, uh, England and France were – you mentioned earlier they kept their ports open to Confederate ships, the few that there were, uh, because of the idea was they they just like just like their ports they were keeping their options open. Mm. Yep. It also is kind of surprising to me that that the Confederate ships would be that far away. What was the point of that? Well, the Alabama was was not the only ship that was roaming the 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 Pacific and and, and Atlantic oceans, and, and even in the case of the Alabama, it even went through the Indian Ocean. Uh, but it was the one that was doing it more extensively and the most successfully. And the reason why is because there was no way that the Confederate Navy in in American waters could compete with the Union Navy. The Union Navy was very successfully blockading the Confederate ports, like Charleston and. Uh, Norfolk and some of the other ones there, uh, Savannah, Galveston, New Orleans, of course. Uh, so um, the what these few Confederate ships did, with Alabama being the most powerful and successful, 
is they were roaming the ocean looking to sink Union ships, merchant ships that were bringing goods either to or from Union ports and sink them out in the ocean so that they could damage the war effort that way. You know, it's a pretty standard thing in, in, in wartime that one of the things that, that you, you try and attack is your enemy's supply line. And so that's what these Confederate ships were doing. If there was, for example, a, a huge merchant ship that was carrying molasses and other and sugar and other goods from, from the Caribbean up to Boston, sink it, and it never gets there. Um, on the other hand, they could have a ship that's leaving New York that's supposed to uh, bring uh, equipment and other supplies to uh, uh, to France or to England. Well, sink it in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and that's exactly what the Alabama did, and it was extraordinarily effective because it, it sank over the course of its two-plus-year uh, journey around the world over 60 ships. And that's why the Lincoln administration was you know, was very frustrated because it was finding that the Alabama was un, un, very surprisingly having an, an effect on the Union economy. You know, it, it, Boston would be waiting for this ship that that uh, there's a lot of money invested in it to show up. And instead, the Alabama would sink it, you know, 300 miles off the coast of New England. What was it about the Alabama that made it so effective? Well, for one thing, it was a new uh, state-of-the-art ship, such as the state-of-the-art was when it was launched in 1862. It did have that combination of wind and steam. Uh, it was a very fast ship. It was an unusual combination of being fast and being powerful. It had you know, a lot of very uh, strong guns on the ship. Uh, it had a uh, mostly a seasoned crew that were not necessarily you know people who had, guys who had grown up in the South but were English and Irish because that's the crew they could get when the built, ship was being built in England. Uh, you have to credit the captain Raphael Semmes, uh, who was uh, uh, he and his family lived actually lived in Alabama. It just was a coincidence that the ship was named <laughs> Alabama. But he was rather a dashing sort, a swashbuckler. In fact, the Union press kept referring to him as a pirate. He did have a kind of a swagger about him and very good leadership abilities. And um, it was that 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 I think that and, and and he was he was devoted to his cause. I mean, this, this poor man he he went to sea in 1862 and left his wife and, and children behind. He didn't see them again until 1865. And uh, you know that kind of example was was something the crew looked up to. Like, look, the captain's not taking any shortcuts himself. He's he's uh, so we're going to follow him to the othermost ends of the earth. Now, I I got a little confused about the different um, some of the different captains that you were talking about. So was he the one who was an attorney? He was. Yes, yes Raphael Sims was originally. He was a bit of a Renaissance man. He was an attorney. He was a published author. Several books that he wrote were published. Uh, he uh, would later become a professor. He'd become a newspaper editor. But during the Civil War, his claim to fame was he was viewed as the Robert E. Lee of the sea. Uh, he was the most effective captain the Confederacy had. And had he had that kind of success previously in the Navy? Well, not necessarily. You know, he... Uh, one of the interesting things about Raphael Sims is he, he didn't have them. He was in the United States Navy for, for you know, 20 something years, uh, even longer, I think over 30 years by the time the Civil War broke out. And he didn't have, he, he had served well in the Mexican American War, for example, although a lot of his adventures were land based. 
so he wasn't necessarily this distinguished, uh, legendary uh, uh, captain once the Civil War broke out, but he did have a lot of experience. But actually, one of the things that was a detriment or a drawback for Sims is that when the Civil War began, he was in his 50s. Now, <laughs> you and I and probably many of your listeners, um, being in your 50s these days, you're like the old 30s. You know? <laughs> There's no big deal. Many people are in the thriving or the peak of their careers even in the military when they're in their 50s. But at a time of uh, American history when the average, um, let's say, uh, uh, lifespan of the American male was probably 50, uh, you're talking about somebody that at, you know, most of, most of the, the captains at, at that time were being retired or being relegated to shore duty. So, so Sims was uh, – he actually found this, this whole fascinating – successful career as a Confederate captain, a swashbuckling Confederate captain, at a time when most of the others were being confined to their deaths. Wow. Now, was he a native Southerner? Well, not really, not technically. He was born and raised in Maryland, which was, you know, some people in Maryland consider themselves members of the South and some people, but sort of officially, Maryland was a, was a Union state when the Civil War broke out. And even more intriguingly, when he married, he married a woman from Ohio who came from an abolitionist family. However, he uh, was, was often – during the 1840s and 1850s, he was stationed in the south, uh, at, at ports in the south. And he eventually bought a, a farm in Alabama where his, his wife and he raised their children. So when the Civil War broke out uh, – he was torn. You know, his wife's family, like I say, they're abolitionists. They they were dismayed when he chose the Confederacy, but he felt that by this point in his life, he he identified with uh, the South, and and uh, that that's where he thought that his loyalties were. And what about his wife? Well, <laughs> she was unhappy for a couple of reasons. One was that. Yeah, her husband had chosen to uh, 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 fight for the South. In fact, she took her kids for a time during the war and went back to live with her parents in Ohio. And uh, she was also not that happy that um, that she was being left alone. As I mentioned, uh, you know, he was gone for for long periods of time, for, for, especially during his naval service before the war. And then when the Civil War broke out, and he he launched on the ship in 1862, and and she didn't see him again until 1865. So it was it was a uh, uh, you know most of the kids were mostly grown by then, so it's not like he was absent, not participating as a as helping with the child rearing. It was just that if they had been married for something like 20 years by then, and then to have this this great chasm between them for three years was very difficult for both of them. I think especially for her, because at least. He was out there captaining a ship and finding the <laughs> success on the open seas. You know, there were, there were certainly enough distractions. Right, and now during one of his earlier absences, there was a little bit of um, scandal that you don't go into too much, <laughs> but, but I found that interesting. <laughs> yeah, we don't know too much about it because you know, for for obvious reasons, Raphael Semps who seemed to write about everything, did not write about or write very little about this event but during one of his lengthy absences i think this would have been in the late 1840s and you know he came home to find his wife with a baby and you know he did the math and he realized he'd been away for longer than nine months what's this 
Oh, and, man. Uh, she, had, she had apparently had had an affair with uh, whoever it was. Was never we can't couldn't find any revealing of who this person was, but uh, that that as you can imagine caused some uh, difficulties between the two of them, and and they they sort of compromised. I mean, he acknowledged her the the daughter as his daughter, but she uh, before long was sent off to a boarding school, and did not get to enjoy really the day-to-day activities with the Sam's family. And it was only uh, actually when, when he went off to war, went off to the Civil War, that uh, her mother, Sam's wife, brought her back from the boarding school, which I think was in the Washington, D.C. area, and she came back to live with her and the, and her youngest children still at home. So it was it was rather a scandal, I mean, that uh, – uh, you know that he had these absences, but you know he was not unique in that respect. I mean, when in those days, especially a seagoing journey could last months, if not over a year or more. So that that was that happened to a lot of families. Well, I wonder whatever became of that daughter. Did you have a chance to find out? No, I don't know uh, whatever became of her. Uh, you know, it, it's sort of like that. That. Uh, I guess it w- would have been a detour that would not have fit into the no. book. No. It would have been beyond the book. And, <laughs> right. And we just never got around to saying, gee, whatever happened to her? Did she ended up becoming the, uh, you know, the, the, the president of Vassar or something like that. We, we, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe maybe I'll look it up and see if I can find there you go. her. <laughs> maybe she had some kind of adventure. It'd be worth a book of your own. Absolutely. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our author, our guest today is Tom Clavin, author of To the Uttermost Ends of the Earth, The Epic Hunt for the South's Most Feared Ship and the Greatest Sea Battle of the Civil War. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your co-author? Yeah, Phil Keith uh, is somebody who I, I mentioned who had served in the Navy for he did, uh, three tours of Vietnam. Uh, his first was as uh, he's actually a, a fighter pilot. And uh, after the Navy, he was uh, uh, involved in some business ventures. And I met Phil, it has to be at least 15 years ago, when uh, I was conducting some writing workshops. And he had decided in his you know, retirement from the Navy and in between you know, business ventures that he wanted to pursue writing. He'd always had an interest in it. And he was working on a novel. And uh, when Phil came to participated in a couple of the workshops that I did. Yeah, it was an okay novel. I, I, but when I learned a little more about his background, I, I thought that he might want to explore a nonfiction book. And if he could find something that was a topic related to Vietnam, which he had, you know, up close and personal experience with, it might work out better for him than, a, than an, an adventure novel. Uh, and sure enough, um, he did find a story about a, a army company, a true story in, in Vietnam, that only 40 years later was awarded the medal that it earned 40 years earlier, but the paperwork got lost. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and and so it was a fascinating story that that uh, he ended up uh, getting this book published called Black Horse Riders, uh, and and he ended up writing uh, you know four or five other books. And by this point, Phil and I had become good friends, and never expecting that we would do a book together and then all blood runs red came along we decided to give it a shot and that experience worked out well that we did uttermost ends of the earth and you know one thing i want to mention about our work together on uttermost ends of the earth is that when we were planning and organizing the book to be written 
Phil came up with the idea. He, he suggested the idea. He said, why don't we each take a captain? And we're going to each write from the point of view of that captain and that ship and that crew and that side of the, of the, of the war. And then when we're all done, we'll sort of like stitch them together. And, see, and, and you know, I had and my immediate response was that will never work. And, and, you know, in my hubris, the reason why I said that will never work is I had never done it before. Ah. And, of course, if Clavin had never done it before, it's only because it would never work. <laughs> so, so thankfully, I tucked my ego back in the drawer and said, well, we'll have to give it a try. And, and so I wrote from the point of view of Raphael Sims and Phil wrote from the point of view of John Winslow, the captain of the USS Kearsage. And we were pleasantly surprised at how it did work that uh you know every that that as the reader is reading the book you're getting the two different sides of of because these you know the kearsage is is chasing trying to chase down and sink the alabama so as this chase around the world is going on you're getting that perspective of each captain and it's also you know from each from each author not knowing necessarily it's each author when we turn the manuscript in we didn't tell our editor that we had done this. We didn't. We waited until he had finished reading the manuscript and gave us some of our feedback and told him. He said you would never know. You know, it worked together. It, worked, mm. it fit, it, fit together seamlessly enough. You would never know that each author was taking each side of the of the story. Well, I was I was going to ask you how you work with co-authors because um, this is not the first time that you've done this. Right. Um, it sounds like you did it differently this time than you have. What what would your normal procedure be working with a co-author? You know, it's not. It, it, there's been no normal procedure because if, every time it's been it's been different. Uh, in the case of, I did a couple of books on baseball uh, biographies of Gil Hodges and Roger Maris with with the co-author Danny Perry, and in that case, Danny, who is a, you know, a great baseball mind, uh, he he just has so much knowledge. He's such a good researcher. He did compile the research and basically hand the material to me. I did the actual writing, and then I would hand it back in chunks back to him to do the revising and editing. Uh, in the case of, uh, of Phil, as I just pointed out, we each took a side, uh, you know, one side of the, of the story and the other side of the story. In the case of, of Bob Drury, uh, we've done uh, Blood and Treasure, I believe, was our seventh book together. Uh, we, uh, I do, I do the majority of the research and the organizing and the outlining and everything. Bob does the writing, and then it, again in chunks as he's done, it comes back to me for revising and editing. So uh, I did a book with Dick Enberg. Some people might remember that name as one of the more well-known sports broadcasters there's ever been. And uh, when we did a book about Ted Williams, it was mostly his words that I was I was writing, not, not you know basically from his point of view, because a lot of the book is a very personal uh, uh, viewpoint of his, not only his own life and career as a broadcaster, but his, uh, Ted Williams was his boyhood, boyhood idol, and when he finally got to meet him, and, and their, their strong friendship for the last 25 or so years of Ted Williams' life was, was really Dick's story, not my story. So the idea was to present Dick's story as, as effectively as possible. So it really depends on the relationship I have with the co-author, and it depends on the project. Do you write any solo as well? Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty fortunate that I can do a collaborative work and then do a solo work, a collaborative work, a solo work. That's certainly been a pattern the last the last few years. Um, you know, my last solo books have been Lightning Down 
And then before that, I have this Frontier Lawman trilogy of uh, Wild Bill, Dodge City, and Tombstone, and uh, several books earlier than that, too, that were, were solo books. So that's, uh, you know, the, on the one hand, you can't share any of the work if you're doing a solo book. I mean, all the research is mine, all the writing is mine, all the revising, all the editing, everything is mine. And, um, you know, that's that's a bit of a – makes life a little more difficult. But the other hand, I am somebody who's in complete control of it. I'm the one making all the choices. Uh, so I don't have to uh, say, well, I don't quite agree with this, but I'll go along with it. No, if I don't agree with it, you know, then do something different because <laughs> I, I, I don't have to answer anybody else. The downside is when you don't have a collaborator, something doesn't work, you have no one to blame. <laughs> That is true. <laughs> I have to take full responsibility if something didn't work. <laughs> I think I just find it interesting that you do both, you know, the collaboration and the and the solo books because it seems like like you like most people would have a strong preference for one or the other. I think you're right. That's a good point, and it is rather unusual because you, I think in most cases when you see uh, writers working together. That's usually what their main focus is and what their what they do. You know, that's that's their career is they is they have a partner and they they do books together. And of course, the majority of writers are are, are solo practitioners. Right. Uh, so, I think it is. You know, come to think of it, I hadn't really sat back and had that perspective before. But I guess it is very unusual to have a writer who is, and very fortunate I consider myself that I can I can go. Back and forth, you know, between writing with another with 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 a partner, uh, and also having my own projects that are and they they overlap. It's, it's, it's that could be a little bit tricky because mm. uh, it's not like I can say to to my writing partner like Bob Drury and I have just finished our eighth book together that's coming out in November. I can't just say to him, "Sorry, Bob, I'll get back to you in a week." I'm I'm struggling with a chapter of my own book that that doesn't go over <laughs> too well. Yeah, you have to make sure that you're 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 doing what you need to do for your own project, but also what you need to do for the projects you're collaborating on. Well, how do you decide on a given project that this is going to be one you do on your own or this is going to be one you do with a partner? Uh, several times it's happened that, uh, you know, Dodge City is an example. Uh, Bob Drury and I had finished doing The Heart of Everything That Is, and I wanted to do another book that was somewhat in the American West still. And my original thought was doing something on, on with the main character being Bat Masterson. And uh, I, I thought, so since we had done, just finished a book that was in, set in the American West and in the Plains, I, I suggested it to, to Bob first. And he didn't really have much interest in that. He wanted to move on to a different era and a different subject, which we eventually did. We did a book together called uh, Lucky 666, which was a story set, set in World War II in the Pacific Theater. So I still wanted to do this story. It eventually evolved into something somewhat different, that it was about Dodge City and Bat Masters and Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. Uh, but that's one example of where I did run it by, you know, one of my collaborators first. There was not that uh, real passion for the project. So I, I took it off on my own. I did it, did it, as, it as my own project. And uh, so that's, that's how it works. Also, um, with Lightning Down, for example, about the, the pilots in, in Buchenwald, uh, I felt from the very beginning very personally attached to that story and, and, and to the main character and other characters. 
So maybe it was just being selfish on my part, but I didn't want to share it. You know, mm. I wanted that to be mine. <laughs> that's that's all mine. And so you found so it. So sometimes, <laughs> yeah, I found it, and I I stumbled upon it. I found it, and I just didn't I just didn't see myself being able to be generous enough to share the story with anyone. <laughs> <laughs> now, to the uttermost ends of the earth is um, from is being published by Hanover Hanover Square, Square Press, Press yes. which is. Um, a division of Harper Collins, I believe. Yes. Right. Yes. And but it looks like you've also had books from Simon and Schuster. Yes. So yes. Bob and I did with Simon and Schuster, and okay. then uh, and then uh, with Dodge City. Uh, not only was was Bob Drury not interested, terribly interested in Dodge City, but our editor Simon and Schuster was not interested in the story either. What eventually became ah. Dodge City. And so, as you know, I mean, legally, I could, as a solo author, I could go someplace else, which is what I eventually did. It was my first book I did with St. Martin's Press. And that turned out to be such a successful alliance uh, to work with the people of St. Martin's Press, and especially my editor, Mark Resnick, that uh, not only have I continued to do my solo books with St. Martin's Press, but when our Simon Schuster contract was up, Bob Drury and I as, as a team moved over to St. Martin. So we're, we're, we're all now under this, that, that umbrella. Okay. So then why is this one Hanover? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that, that's another, another good question. I, I, you know, it was, it was where uh, Phil had previously done a book with St. Martin's press and he couldn't sell them on another project. And so when we put together a proposal for All Blood Runs Red, uh, our agent brought it to St. Martin's Press, and you're doing, I guess you could call it due diligence. And uh, again, it was the same thing. They weren't that interested in the in the project. So again, you know, my, my contract <laughs> allowed for me to do, work with a different collaborator. So I ended up we ended up going, you know, Hanover Square Press stepped in and said, "Oh, we want to do it." So that's why they ended up doing. All blood runs red and the uttermost ends of the earth. It gets kind of complicated. It does. So for every idea that you have, you have to decide first, do I want to do it myself or have a collaborator? Who do right. I want to collaborate with? And then where right. do I want to publish it? Where do I want to publish it? But I am simplifying my life at this point because I, I'm now doing stuff only for, you know, my 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 gang at, at St. Martin's Press, both okay. with my, as a solo author and as a collaborator with Bob Drury. You're listening to Writers' Voices, and our guest today is Tom Clavin, author of To the Uttermost Ends of the Earth, the Epic Hunt for the South's Most Feared Ship and the Greatest Sea Battle of the Civil War. Tom, could you read a little bit from this book for us? Sure, I can. Great. I thought of a passage that uh, might might work out fine, that uh, when the Kearsage finally finds the Alabama, which is on, in June of 1864, and it's been chasing the Alabama literally to the uttermost ends of the earth for about 14 months at this point. And the Alabama had put in at Cherbourg, France, because it was one of the few European ports that was willing to still accommodate uh, uh, a Confederate ship. Although the French people had said, listen, we don't want to get into, into trouble with our American friends, especially since the North is winning the war. Uh. <laughs> and we, don't, we don't want to back the losing side. So you have to – you can only stay here for a few days. Well, while they were there, the, the Kearsage and the Captain John Winslow pull up outside the harbor, and 
Winslow is also to go into the harbor and start attacking the, the, the Alabama right there, but the French authorities tell him that would be an act of war. We, the French would, could declare war in the United States if you do that. So Winslow said basically, okay, I'll wait out here and see if the Alabama will come out. And Semmes, when he's apprised of this, he says, you know, we will fight. You know, we're not going to just hide hide in the harbor. So he sends a message out to the Kearsage that uh, we're going to come out there and we're going to go out to the international waters and we'll like two boxes in the ring. We'll punch it out and we'll see which one of us is left standing. So it's on the Sunday morning of June 19, 1864, where the Kearsage is sort of like slowly steaming back and forth, waiting and waiting and waiting to see if the, if the Alabama will make good on its promise. For Sunday tradition, all the crew not performing critical tasks would fall in on the main deck in their very best uniforms to he- hear the Bible read by the captain, maybe a homily, and hopefully a few words on the situation they were facing. Captain Winslow took his customary position between the two long rows of his officers and sailors, who were lined up port and starboard, stiffly at attention. Nearly all his crew were there. Two engineers were below deck, maintaining the Kearsage's head of steam, and a gang of coal shovelers were feeding the furnaces. The normal deck watch was posted and alert. Winslow cleared his throat and began, At ease, men, today I want to read you a few passages from Captain, a boatswain positioned high above the main deck, cried out from his mizzenmast perch, She's a-coming, she's a-coming out. It was as if a bolt of St. Elmo's fire had been shot to the crew. Every man stiffened, waiting for the command to take stations. Winslow slapped his Bible shut and handed it to his Lieutenant Thornton. My glass, he barked. The captain's yeoman ran to the forecastle, grabbed his chief's spyglass, and dashed back to his commander's side. Winslow strode to the port rail and lifted the powerful brass and optical instrument to his one good eye and peered at a large vessel, belching gray smoke, steaming out of the mouth of the harbor. He could not resist declaring, And so there you are, you bastard, at last. The crew, overhearing, broke into wild cheers, waved their hats, and jumped up and down in place. They were on a hair trigger, some on tiptoes even, waiting for the captain's next command. He lowered his glass, turned to his exec, and said simply, Battle stations, Mr. Thornton. All Thornton had to do was turn to the crew and yell, Go! Every sailor knew his place, and the mass of men dissolved into a wild scramble for their assigned posts. Some dashed to the engine room, others headed for the guns. Loaders began sw- Loaders began sweating out in the ammunition lockers, hauling out more shot and shell. The surgeon and his staff prepared a medical station in the wardroom, laying out battle dressings and bone sores. Hospital stewards began spreading sand around the guns to soak up the blood that was bound to be shed. The gunner's mates grabbed rammers, lanyards, sponges, and firelocks. Stokers shoved more coal into the fires, and the engineers hefted tags and oil cans, hefted rags and oil cans. Landsmen, seamen, and powder monkeys distributed powder bags, round shot, and shells. The Marines positioned their rifles, grappling hooks, pistols, and even cutlasses while also taking over the forward parrot guns. As every man settled in, the hard-charging shape of the Alabama grew larger. She had a bone in her teeth, and she was headed straight for the Kearsage. Helmsman, Winslow shouted, point her out to sea. Winslow would not fight this battle in French territorial waters. He would take a position six miles out then turn and face the enemy. He was a cautious man, a careful man. Thirty-seven years in the Navy, many of them at sea, had taught him that preparation and practice beat daring and impetuosity. He would make sure his men were fully ready, then reverse course and head straight for his old friend and former shipmate, 
with every intention of blowing him and his cursed ship to kingdom come. <laughs> and then, very soon after that, the battle begins. Oh. So, his old friend and former shipmate. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that. Because, <laughs> yeah. uh, one thing I didn't mention is that, uh, that I think adds a little more drama to this overall story, is that during the Mexican-American War, both uh, Raphael Semmes and John Winslow were not only both uh, young officers in the U.S. Navy, but they were shipmates and, and became very good friends. And so he have this all these years later in the Civil War. They're 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 each captain of the most uh, formidable ships their the formidable ships their Navy has, uh, and they're about to fight each other. Basically, fight each other to the death. Wow. I was really I found it really interesting how many like when the Confederate States succeeded. What did that do to the U.S. Navy? How much of an impact did it have? Yeah, that's a good question because what we mostly hear about is that what happened to the West Point graduates. You know what happened to the Army officers, and and some of them had to make this very difficult choice of, you know, they may have have been serving already in the U.S. Army for ten years, twelve years, even even twenty years, and then the war broke out, or even the the weeks leading up to the war, they had to make a choice. Do I you know, like Robert E. Lee was an example of that. I mean, here's somebody who is a Virginian, and he had to make a choice of whether he would be, take a, a rather important position in the U.S. Army, in the Union Army, as it turned out, or would he resign because he had to go with his home state of Virginia, which, as we know, he did. And the same thing happened with uh, Annapolis graduates, the, the U.S. Navy officers. They had the same thing, Raphael Semmes being an example of that, and Winslow, I should point out, being an example of that too, because John Winslow – was born in North Carolina, so he was a native Southerner. But the reason why he went with the Union when when push came to shove is that by for many years by then he had married into a Massachusetts family, and he and his wife and children lived in you know near Boston. So by that point in time in his life, he felt that he was he was a Northerner, and that that's when he chose to, to fight with the Union Navy. Were there do you think were there officers who really were Southerners who stayed with the Union? Well, yeah, Winslow was an example of that, and there were others who did so too. Uh, not that many, because it was the prevailing sentiment for for a lot of these officers, both in the army and in the navy, is that they felt uh, strongly that they uh, would uh, rather fight for their home state. Uh, mm. You know, states' rights was a big reason for the Civil War occurred. I mean, obviously, slavery was a huge amount of it, but many of the southern states said, we, we don't want these northerners telling us what to do. So, And they had their, that's where their families were, too. And they, it would have made life difficult for their families if, let's say, you were from Missouri or you were from uh, Tennessee, and you chose to be with the Union Army or Union Navy. Uh, that would make life not only difficult for you personally, but for your family back home. Oh. They'd, they'd be looked upon as traitors. And you wouldn't see them. You wouldn't be able to see them. Yeah. No, and who knew how long the war was going to last? I mean, certainly many people, when the war began in April of 1862, had no idea that it would last until April or May of 1865. No, they thought it would be, you know, a few months at most, I think. Certainly on the Union side, they believed that. You know, yeah. they thought that, well, well they, they didn't have, understandably, they didn't have much respect for the Union, for this Confederate Army, and especially what it the, or whatever the little bit there was in the Confederate Navy, so they thought, well, brush them aside and give us a few months, and we'll be everything will be back to normal. Wow. 
Now, have you written about the Civil War before, or was this your first first time? This was the first time, and that's what, another reason that made it so enticing. That uh, uh, you know, I've had the the uh, ability to write about the about World War II at least two or three times, and, and write about World War One, and and uh, uh, and write about the the Indian Wars on the plains and with Daniel Boone in, in Kentucky and the Ohio Valley, but uh, Never the Civil War, which, and I think a big reason was because I didn't see myself writing another book about Antietam or writing another book about Chickamauga or Shiloh or some of these more well-known battles. To me, they had been covered by very good writers very thoroughly. And uh, But when something like this came along that was a unique story about the, a, the greatest sea battle of the Civil War, like there was, there was even any sea battle of the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, I mentioned. Mean, we, we sort of t- took a little liberty there because it's like the only sea battle of the Civil War, so <laughs> it couldn't help but be the great but it was a great one. Well, I mentioned that my grandfather, you know, read everything about the Civil War, and of course he'd had, um, he was born in the early 1900s, so not that not that far after the right. Civil War, and right. like his grandparents would have been part of it. Yeah, still alive when it, yeah. Alive. oh yeah. yeah, and um, his his grandmother, I think, or great grandmother, had run a station on the Underground Railroad here in Iowa, uh-huh. in Lambs Grove, Iowa, and uh, we have a whole trove of letters from a um, soldier, a Civil War soldier who was his, I think it was his grandmother or great-grandmother's brother and um really fascinating um you know once you can decipher the handwriting which it's interesting everyone had this beautiful flowery handwriting Mm -hmm. but it's hard to read (laughs) right (laughs) yeah faded over the years Yeah, yeah yeah but some of these letters are really really interesting because there's one where he was on the um on a hospital ship in the um Bay uh, outside the Battle of Vicksburg and hearing the battle. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And um, there's another one where he's in Missouri because um, this would have been an Iowan. And so they were in Missouri and he writes about how as they are, um, as you know, they're, they're kind of marching through Missouri. And when they would see um, slaves along the side mm-hmm. of the road, they'd, they'd encourage them to fall in with them and come with them yeah uh-huh. but when they got back to the camp the captain would not let them in would not let the slaves in and um well they had to have their own units i mean they there was not uh you know during the civil war the union army was not integrated they were black soldiers who fought for the union but they had their separate units there's another letter in here about um he's He's trying to get a position, an officer position with one of the black units um, because they actually – the officers in those units were white. And, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's really fascinating history. Um, yeah. And did you have any – like I'm sure you did, you know, reading here that original source materials that you were looking at in writing this. Well, one of the uh, – strokes of luck in this particular case is that uh, Raphael Sems was, he, he really envisioned himself as a writer. I mean, I think if he had, if he was forced to choose one occupation and stick to it, it would have been as a writer, uh, as, even more so than I think as a captain or as an attorney and some of the other occupations he had. So, and he published, there were several books of his published during his lifetime, so 
thankfully, there's there's Sam's actual writings about his adventures uh, and his experiences that we could draw upon. And John Winslow was uh, a very devoted letter writer to his wife back in in the Boston area. So there's there's you know hundreds of letters that have survived of, of, from Winslow over his career as as a naval officer that went to his wife. So you have his you can actually put things in his words because that's the way he wrote them or expressed himself. And you also have, in, in both the case of the Alabama and the Kearsage, you have a couple of the junior officers kept journals that were later made, you know, that survived. So there's this, we were fortunate that there's, there's quite a bit of what's, what's called contemporaneous sources to draw upon, you know, what the actual eyewitness accounts of people who, who were part of these adventures. Now, have any of your books been made into movies? No, I've had a few options here and there, uh, and you know that's always there's always that that blip of of, of uh, hope. <laughs> you know, when Dodge City came out, that was optioned uh, by Steven Spielberg's company that was kind of interested in maybe turning Dodge City into a limited series. And even when the option expired, it was it was it was renewed. Mm. But nothing came of it, and uh, there's a couple of books that, that right now, as we speak, that are under option. And and you know, being more of a grizzled veteran now when it comes to these things, I realize that an option is nice. It, 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 at least it creaks the door open a little bit. But you know, you could pick a number for every hundred books that get optioned. Maybe one actually ends up on the bigger little screen. So ah. if, if, I don't I don't wait by the phone. If something happens, <laughs> it does. If it if it doesn't, it doesn't. Just do what I know how to do. And of course, some of these things, movies or movies or series have been made, like Tombstone. There is a movie called Tombstone, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, very good one. Yeah. Yeah, and how like like it, when it's a actual when you're writing history. Does a does a movie maker need to option a book to make the movie of that period in history? Not really. I mean, if I mean seriously, if if somebody today wanted to make another movie about, uh, I mean, you can make a movie about Dodge City, for example, uh, or you can make a movie about a you know fighter American fighter pilots who are shot down over France and end up in a concentration camp. You can, you can. There are other sources you can probably draw from, but actually, optioning a book uh, does help a filmmaker have a little more authenticity, and it it, it does some of the homework already for you. You don't have to start from mm-hmm. scratch with the research. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you have a lot of research that's lightning down. It's a lot of research into what was going on in the concentration world, camps in World War II, and very specifically about the pilots who ended up there and who they were, what their backgrounds were. So it, it really is become, can become a very useful uh, uh, foundation uh, for making making the story. And uh, and and you 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 a filmmaker protects him or herself a little bit more legally by actually optioning and having a specific book that they're drawing from. That makes sense. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, Tom, we're almost out of time, but what was the first book you published? And tell me how like sort of the publishing story behind that the very first book that i had that had my name on it was a book called uh uh oh gosh what's the name of it now i'm trying to think it was published in 1993 oh raising the rainbow generation was the name of it may even still be in print i don't know (laughs) but i had done a magazine story and i was doing a lot of magazine work at the time and i uh was doing a story about the 
impacts that uh, white parents have, some of their un, uh, unintentional, unintentional actions or words might have on their children who, who, as they're developing their view on people of other colors. And I interviewed this husband and wife, African-American husband and wife uh, psychology team, and we sort of like hit it off. And they had a book basically under contract. They had an agent, and they needed a writer. So we decided to work together. So basically they were the experts. I wrote the book, and the book was published by Fireside Book, which which may exist still. That was a imprint, a paperback imprint of Simon & Schuster. And that was a foot in the door because there was my name. It was in very small print, <laughs> but, but it was on the cover of the book. And we actually did another book together, and I ended up doing a couple other collaborations with a couple of other people, and that was how I got started. So for writers who are listening, uh, one way to break into the business is, is if you uh, can find somebody who is an expert at a, in a particular field but is not a writer uh, but has an interesting topic to address, that could be a way to, to – to, Break through the barrier because one, this I can't I can't overestimate how important it is to have your name on the cover of a book uh, uh, to, to, to help your career along. Mm. And of course, you had been a writer already. I mean, you were a journalist. I done a lot of. I was yeah. been in the New York Times. I yeah, done a lot of yeah. newspaper and magazine work. So yes, I was not a complete novice, but yeah. you know, it is it is your your. your you're punching up a bit if you want to get get breakthrough into the book world. Well, you did it very successfully, and I look forward to seeing your next book, Tom. Thank you. Yes, the next lottery, <laughs> Tom Clavin collaboration called The Last Hill will be out November 1. All right. And we always end with a quote, and I'm going to take one from your book, from the um, cover page of Act 3, The Pursuit. We must all either wear out or rust out, every one of us. My choice is to wear out. And that's from yeah. Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Right. He's always so quotable. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices.